you have your Bibles this morning, we're looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 41. Luke, who is a physician, he's also a historian, is uh, recording the events of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ here. He's doing so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and these are the words that he pens. And when he had said these things, he, Jesus, went on ahead going up to Jerusalem When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where you are entering and you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. If you're taking notes this morning, which I would encourage you to do, I think you'll listen and retain better if you do, Uh, write this down. Number one, we see the humble king of kings. Your outline comes to you this morning by way of the the movement or the scenes in the text. The first movement or scene that we come to is that we see the humble king of kings. Look there at your Bible. Look back specifically at verse 28. Luke says this, And when he had said these things. Well, that's referring to the parable of the ten minas. If you look at your Bible there, the text that is preceding or the text that comes just before is the parable of the ten minas. And so when Jesus had said these things or concluded speaking about these things, he went on ahead up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has been ministering north in Galilee, but now he's in Jericho. And he spends a couple of days there where he does a number of things. He restores sight to a man named Bartimaeus there. He saves Zacchaeus before he, being accompanied by an entourage, sets out for Jerusalem. Now, the Jericho Road was the main thoroughfare, uh, the, the main highway of passage between Jericho and Jerusalem, and it was very well traveled. But given the fact that we're only five or six days away from the Passover, this road, the Jericho Road, would have been absolutely brimming with people. I mean, at points along this 18-mile dusty road, the crowd would have most likely been shoulder to shoulder as they traveled into Jerusalem together. And we should know that this passage does not mark the beginning of Jesus' journey into Jerusalem. Rather, it marks the end. 
I mean, just 10 chapters back in Luke chapter 9, specifically Luke chapter 9, verse 54, Luke writes, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he, Jesus, determined or with resolved purpose set his face toward Jerusalem. Some translations say that Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He was resolved to go there. He was determined to go there because Jesus knew that that was where he would die and he was born to die. It was the purpose for which he came. Jesus was born to die and so he is determined, resolved, sets his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And so what we find here is not the beginning of this story but it is the end of this story. Why was Jesus coming to Jerusalem in particular, though? Well, he was traveling with the Jewish masses to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was the annual celebration in which the Jewish people commemorated the fact that God had, had liberated them from Egyptian slavery in their past. Those events are recorded back in Exodus chapter 12. If you've got some free time, which we know that you've typically got exorbitant free time when you can't leave your home, uh, go back and read Exodus chapter 12 sometime this week. It's a phenomenal read there. And recount how God liberates or frees his people from Egyptian slavery. I mean, back there, God instructed through Moses and Aaron that every household should sacrifice a lamb, specifically a lamb without blemish, and they should mark their doorpost with its blood. And as the angel of the Lord passed through the city, striking the firstborn of every male in the land, he would pass over those homes who bore the blood of the sacrificed lamb. He would pass over, which is exactly what we're celebrating here in Jerusalem. We're celebrating that Passover where God freed his people from Egyptian captivity. And so Jesus, along with likely two million other Jewish people, was descending on Jerusalem to celebrate God's saving act on their behalf. I mean, Jesus was coming to celebrate Passover, but more than that, Jesus Christ was coming to be the Passover lamb for all who would believe. I mean, Jesus again was coming into Jerusalem to die. That was his purpose from the beginning. Again, that was the purpose for which Jesus divested himself of heaven's glory, took on human flesh, and became a man, John chapter 1 tells us. He came to be the suffering sacrifice for sin. The timing was precise. The day and the hour had been determined in eternity past. Every step of Jesus' life was premeditated and calculated. Every step has been with unwavering resolve, a step toward the cross, and absolutely no power of hell or scheme of man could interrupt the process or make Jesus forego his redemptive plan. This plan could not be altered in any way, shape, or form. I love the way that Luke writes this. Jesus, look back at verse 28, went on ahead. I mean, just encapsulated in that simple phrase right there is so much good, deep, rich theology. Jesus went on ahead. You see, Jesus is our good shepherd And the good shepherd leads the way to his own death. 
He isn't forced. He comes willingly, and he is in absolute, complete control. I mean, Jesus' death, his redemptive plan, it was no secret. I mean, just one chapter back in Luke chapter 18, Jesus pulled his disciples aside like he had done several times before, and he reminded them for a third and final time, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that has been written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished there. He didn't say it might be accomplished, it could be accomplished. Everything that was written about the Son of Man from the prophets of old will be accomplished. It will happen precisely as it was divinely ordained and planned. For he, Jesus, will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him on the third day. He will rise. But the disciples, I mean, Jesus' closest followers, they did not understand his plan. And the first time Jesus told his disciples that he would be crucified, you might remember that Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. May it never be. May it never happen as you say. Far be it from you, Lord. The second time Jesus told his disciples is recorded in Luke chapter 9, specifically verses 44 and 45. Jesus said these words. Actually, he prefaces his statement by saying this, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then even the last time that Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to be crucified, we see in Luke chapter 18 that they still do not understand. But later they'll understand. Later, after the cross and after the resurrection, Jesus' disciples will understand when they're given the Holy Spirit. John writes about that in John chapter 12, verse 16, telling us that Jesus' disciples, Jesus actually told his disciples that you will understand. When I send to you the Holy Spirit, he'll make these things known to you. Look back at Luke chapter 19 again. Find verse 29 there in your Bible. 29 and the following. Luke writes these words. When he, Jesus, drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet set. Here's what you're to do, Jesus says. He says, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? If they ask you, what in the world are you doing? You shall reply and say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Well, Jesus and his throng of travelers now are likely within about two miles of Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure uh, the whereabouts of Bethphage. It is likely a suburb of Jerusalem. But Bethany is a small town just on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus had visited Bethany many times before. As a matter of fact, Jesus oftentimes would stay in Bethany when he visited Jerusalem. 
Everyone in Bethany would have known exactly who Jesus was. As a matter of fact, it was just three weeks earlier that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead right there in Bethany. Over in John chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, John writes, The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard all that he had done. You see, Jesus was a well-known figure. I mean, Jesus had become somewhat of an icon as he crisscrossed back and forth through, uh, through Jerusalem, through Galilee, uh, in his earthly life and ministry. And so as Jesus finds himself here in Bethany, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, everyone knows who he is. Many, many know what he has done. I mean, you can imagine the chatter as Jesus approaches Bethany. I mean, people are probably saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, the one who raises the dead, he's here. I mean, the excitement surrounding Jesus was high as he left Jericho, but as Jesus enters Bethany, the fever pitch of the crowd is amplified. At this point, Jesus pulls two unnamed disciples aside and he gives them very specific instructions. The specific instructions that he gives them is that they are to go into the village, again, possibly Bethany, where they would find a colt that had never been ridden. Some commentators uh, say that that was perhaps a colt that was suitable or set aside for holy purposes. And they were to untie this colt, and if they were asked why, which is a reasonable question, right? Why, why are you untying the colt? Uh, maybe more specifically, why are you untying my colt? They were instructed simply to respond, the Lord has need of it. And so these two unnamed disciples head into the village and they find this colt just as Jesus said that they would. And as they're untying the colt, they're asked, why are you untying the colt? Just as Jesus said that they would be asked. And they reply, just as Jesus instructed them to reply, the Lord has need of it. I mean, if you're anything like me, I try to put myself in the, in the shoes of these two disciples here. I mean, can you imagine their conversation as they're bringing the colt back to Jesus? I mean, it looks something like this. Jesus told us to go to Jerusalem. Uh, or told us to go into town and, and to find the colt. And we went into town and we found the colt. And Jesus told us that we were likely going to be asked something when we got there. We were asked and we responded just as Jesus told us to respond. Everything happened here just as Jesus said that it would happen. These events happened just as Jesus said they would. I mean, can you imagine this conversation between these two fellas? You ever wonder why a colt? Why, why a donkey? Why, why a colt of all animals? Why did Jesus choose this mode of transportation? This doesn't seem like a mode of transportation fit for a king. It doesn't, it doesn't appear to signify anything triumphant, which is likely what is subtitled in your Bible here for this passage, the, the triumphal entry. But a colt? doesn't seem to signify anything that is triumphant. And so why, of all the animals, does Jesus choose this one? Well, I think there are three clear reasons why Jesus made his grand appearance in Jerusalem riding on the back of a common colt. 
The first is the fulfillment of prophecy. 500 years before the birth of Christ, Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on the colt of a donkey. If you have your Bible there, stick your your pen in Luke chapter 19 or or your piece of paper that you're writing on this morning and turn over to Zechariah. If you need some, some help finding it, it's the second to the last Old Testament book. Zechariah, Malachi, and then we turn to the New Testament, Matthew. Find Zechariah chapter 9. I want us to look at verses 9 and 10 for just a moment. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. And I want you to see this prophecy that was declared, made 500 years before the birth of Christ. Before Jesus was ever born, before he ever divested himself of something of his heavenly glory and throne and came to earth and took on human flesh, John chapter 1, before any of that ever took place, these words were prophesied. The prophet Zechariah writes this in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Remember that Jesus told his disciples just one chapter ago in Luke chapter 18. He said, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man, everything that was said, everything that was declared by the prophets will be accomplished. Well, here is just one proof in the pudding. Here's just one example that Jesus is sovereignly in control here. Jesus is ensuring that every prophetic I is dotted and every T is crossed. Everything will come to pass. Everything will happen just as it was declared. And so the first reason that Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a colt is that it was a fulfillment, a direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. I mean, it was a big, a big red arrow pointing to Jesus, declaring, this is the one, he is it, he is the Messiah. The second reason I think that Jesus chooses a cult is also mentioned in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. He said, your king is coming. Look at these words if you're still there in Zechariah. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Did you catch the word there? Humble. How strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities in which they had taken, in which they had won. This time, no wall was broken down for a grand entry. This time, no garlanded hero stands in his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects past smoking altars and followed by captive kings and princes that are bound in chains. Instead, this time, just a meek and lowly man riding upon the colt of a donkey. Humility. Humility. Our risen, ruling, reigning, soon returning king is humble. He is humble. The colt is representative of Jesus' humility. Remember, Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2, probably a familiar text to most of you, 
He, Jesus, made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, even death on a cross. And so the first reason is that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a colt is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The second reason is that it points to our suffering, sacrificed Savior's humility. And the third reason that Jesus chooses a colt is mentioned just one verse later in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. If you're still there, find verse 10. While you're turning there, while you're finding that, let me tell you this. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders rode horses if they were riding to war, but donkeys if they came riding in peace. Zechariah 9 verse 10 highlights this piece. Zechariah writes, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off And he shall speak, here's the word, peace to the nations. But his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I mean, note here, just take note how many symbols of peace you find there in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. I mean, Zechariah says, I will will cut off the chariot. In other words, I'll put an end to the, the main vehicle of war. Secondly, I'll cut off the war horse. There's no need for horses here used in war. Jesus is coming in peace. He says the battle bows shall be cut off or broken. There's there's no need for bows. There's no need for arrows in fighting. We learn here that he will speak peace to the nations. You see, the Messiah, Jesus Christ's message was one of reconciliation. Be reconciled to the Father through the Son. It was a message of peace, a message of reconciliation. And then lastly, we see that his rule shall be from sea to sea. You see, our king controls all territory, and he has no enemies. No enemies. You see, the cult reminds us that Jesus, our Prince of Peace, is a humble servant king. But there's another entry, let me remind you, This is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem just prior to his crucifixion, but there is another entry coming. We should remember that Jesus is soon returning and he will return in absolute glorious splendor. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John writes of Jesus' return in Revelation chapter 19. Don't, Don't turn there, just give me your ears here for a moment. And I want you to hear these words, speaking of Jesus' second entry, his second coming. He will come, this time not mounted on a colt. He will come not as the humble servant king. He will come as a warrior king the second time. John writes these words in Revelation chapter 19. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, here we go, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war this time. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name that is written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, they come following him, also riding on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will roar or will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He came the first time in peace. He comes the second time to take vengeance on his adversaries. We see here, point number one, the humble King of kings entering into Jerusalem. Number two, write this down if you're taking notes. We see the hailed king of kings you see the humble king of kings first secondly in the text here we see the hailed king of kings if you're not already there turn back to luke's gospel find chapter 19 again where we're at and look specifically at verse 36 luke writes this and as he rode along they spread their cloaks on the road And can you imagine the scene here? I mean, can you just put yourself for a moment, challenging as it may be, can you put yourself in the context here? I mean, here is Jesus, God in the flesh, the the very one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, seated on a humble colt with literally hundreds of thousands of people lining the road with their garments. I mean, never before has Jesus done anything to promote a public demonstration. As a matter of fact, Jesus has gone to great lengths throughout the gospel to downplay any public demonstration. He went to great lengths to keep his ministry uh, relatively silent, oftentimes even withdrawing from the crowds, the gospel writers tell us. Why? Why is that? Why why before this point? Why up until now did Jesus withdraw from the crowds? Why did he keep his, his ministry relatively obscure, relatively silent? Well, I would submit to you the reason is because the settled sovereign plan of God was that Jesus would die in a particular place at a particular time in Jerusalem on the Passover. And so God in his sovereignty was orchestrating every event, every interaction, every conversation, every miracle, every city that Jesus found himself traveling to, to bring us to this point where Jesus would die in Jerusalem on the Passover. But word about Jesus was traveling fast. I mean, it's not every day that someone turns water into wine at a wedding. It's not every day that someone commands an unclean spirit to come out of a man by the very power of his words. It's not every day that that someone heals a paralyzed man and goes even further claiming to forgive his sin. It's not every day that someone feeds 5,000 people with five barley loaves and just a couple fish. I mean, as Jesus ministered, he became somewhat of an icon. Word about him, his name became famous. Matter of fact, Matthew records that. Don't turn there, but just listen here. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and the following. He, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, and here's what he did. He went teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 
And then we have these words, so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, those who were oppressed by demons, even epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I mean, Jesus has become an icon. Word about him has spread like wildfire, and understandably so. I mean, there has never been an individual that has stepped on the scene who has done the things Jesus has done and said the things that Jesus has said, even proclaiming that he himself is the Messiah, the one foretold, who has come in the flesh and who would die on a Roman cross but then rise again three days later, victorious over sin and death. Not only has Jesus healed diseases and sicknesses all throughout Israel, not only has he performed miracle after miracle, but he also taught. When Jesus opened his mouth, when he communicated, when Jesus taught, he taught as though to leave those who heard him absolutely astonished. As a matter of fact, multiple times throughout the gospel, we find that language, that those who heard Jesus upon hearing his words were amazed, literally astonished or awestruck as they heard him who taught with authority that far superseded their scribes and authorities. I mean, excitement surrounding the ministry of Jesus was already high here. But to add to the buzz, Jesus is now entering the same city again where he just three weeks earlier raised a dead man. Who, by the way, is likely in the crowd. Lazarus is likely in the crowd here lining the road on the way into Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus is not withdrawing from the crowd today. This Sunday, Jesus actually seems to invite public attention and absolutely every single eye, without a doubt, is centered upon him. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. But keep in mind, as the people are fixated upon Jesus, they're not looking for a sin bearer. They're not looking for a redeemer. They're not looking for a savior. They're looking for a political king. They're looking for the one who would ride in and free them from from Rome's heavy-handed, oppressive rule. I mean, the people, they know that Jesus is a miracle worker. Every pious Jewish person would have been familiar with Zechariah's prophecy that the king would come riding on the colt of a donkey. And as the enthusiasm mounts and the excitement surges, the people here are undoubtedly thinking to themselves in their minds, if not already beginning to, expo- to exclaim with their lips, this is him, this is him, this is our king. Now is the time. He's going to inaugurate the kingdom now. And he's going to save us from Rome now. Finally, finally, this is our king. But they have radically, radically misunderstood who Jesus is, and his purpose and intent in coming. Jesus was not just some political king who had come to save Rome or to to save uh, Israel from Rome's heavy-handed oppressive rule. Jesus was the sin bearer. Jesus was the redeemer, is the sin bearer, is the redeemer. He is our king. 
He is inaugurating a kingdom. It just wasn't the kingdom that they were looking for or expecting. And so what do they do? Well, look at your Bible there again. Look at the text. The people, they begin to throw their cloaks on the ground in front of him, almost making a royal carpet here. They're, they're rolling out the red carpet, so to speak. What's the significance of his followers divesting themselves of their clothing and spreading out their cloaks on the road? What's the, what's the importance of this? What's the significance of this action? Well, this is a gesture of reverence and submission. They were, in essence, saying, take everything we have. We will gladly place ourselves under your rule. I mean, getting low in the presence of the king is symbolic of submission of his majesty or to his majesty and authority. It's interesting to note that we see something similar taking place back in the book of 2 Kings. Don't turn there. But 2 Kings chapter 9 records Jehu's anointing as king of Israel. And in 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 13, we, we read these words. Then in haste, every man took off his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. You see, the people's response here as they lined the road heading into Jerusalem, their response of reverence and submission are right. Jesus is king, but their expectations are wrong. Jesus has not come to slay their oppressors. He has come to save sinners. He's come to save sinners. Look at verse 37. Luke says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. I mean, Jesus and the following entourage have made the ascent up the Mount of Olives now. They've reached its summit, and now they have begun the descent down the hill into Jerusalem. I mean, having, having crested the mountain's small peak, the panorama of Jerusalem would have absolutely filled their view. Everything that they saw from, from left to right would have been the expansive, expansive city of Jerusalem. There in front of them would have been the city wall and the eastern gate. I mean, like a diamond in the setting of a ring, stood Herod's, Herod's magnificent temple overlooking the city. At this moment, hundreds of thousands of people who had, had been following Jesus from Jericho and Bethany are met with hundreds of thousands of people who have been caught up in the wind, who have caught word that Jesus is coming in. And so they're now flooding out of Jerusalem to see him. I mean, here's the picture. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. The road is lined with followers. As, as, the, as the, the, the voices begin to mount, as, as the people begin to shout and exclaim, this is him, this is our king, that word can now be heard almost. It's like a big game of telephone. That word can be heard in the city of Jerusalem. And so hundreds of thousands of people who are in Jerusalem begin to flock out of the city and meet Jesus along with those hundreds of thousands of people who are lining the road. This is an absolutely massive, massive crowd. John's account says this, the large crowd 
that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So what did they do? They took palm branches and they went out to meet him. And here the excitement of Jesus reaches its absolute crescendo as the mass of expectant people break into song and they begin singing these words, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, the praise of the people is fitting here. As a matter of fact, they're actually quoting an Old Testament psalm. This is an enthronement psalm. Specifically from Psalm 118, verse 26. Psalm 118, 26 says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118, 26. But these individuals in Jerusalem, they modified that psalm. And they said, blessed is the one. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the king. I mean, Luke leaves this out, but the other three gospel writers include that they were shouting, amongst other things, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means save us now, save us now. Unfortunately, the multitude encircling Jesus with ardent words of praise, they're praising an absolute fantasy of their own creation. They're worshiping a Jesus of their own imagination. Friends, oh, how sad it is that the very same thing takes place today. This is true today. There are countless people who worship a Jesus of their own making, who worship a Jesus that they have created in their own mind who looks just like them. A Jesus that is just like your golden retriever. He loves you unconditionally, he protects you, and he comes when you call. But that's not the Jesus that we see in the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is a humble servant, but friends, we must not forget that he is also a sovereign master. He is a humble servant, but he is also a sovereign master. And his call is very clear. Matter of fact, Luke, just a handful of chapters back in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, uttered these words. Jesus speaking, he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So I ask you this morning, friends, Do you worship the Jesus of the Bible, who is a humble servant, but who is also a sovereign master? Or have you just devised and created a Jesus of your own liking, a figment of your own imagination that is nothing more than your own golden retriever? Who comes when you beckon, who provides exactly what you need, and loves you unconditionally no matter what you do? It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Look at verse 37 again. The crowd adds to the praise course these words, praise in heaven and glory in the highest. A praise in heaven and glory in the highest. Friends, do those words sound familiar to you? Have you heard those words somewhere else before? Because to me, they sound a whole lot like the song of another multitude. 
the host of angels who announced Christ's birth exclaimed, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those whom God is pleased. We see that in Luke chapter 2. And what the people are exclaiming here in Luke chapter 19 sounds a whole lot like those angels' words. You see the angels saying of peace on earth, but the throng encircling Jesus sings of peace in heaven. Friends, there will be no peace on earth until the final triumphal entry. Let me rewind that. That's very important. There will be no peace on earth until the final triumphal entry. And he's coming soon. Are you ready for that? Are you prepared for the day that you will stand before your God, your creator, toe-to-toe, and you will give an account for your life? And there will be no hiding. There will be no masking. There will be no cover-up. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that everyone will be naked, naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But praise God that because of the work of Christ on the cross, there is peace with God in heaven. Think about Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If you've not been justified by faith, then you have no peace with God. And so just like Paul exclaimed to the Corinthian church that on behalf of Christ, we we implore you, we beg you, be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. All the commotion has garnered Jesus not only the attention of the multitudes, but now he has the attention of the Pharisees as well. Look at verse 39 there again in your Bible. Luke writes this, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I mean, let me just remind you for a moment here. The Pharisees hated Jesus. They couldn't stand him. To the Pharisees, Jesus was nothing more than a blasphemer who stirred up the people. That's all he was. And so they wanted him dead. Matthew tells us that the chief priests and the elders did not want to disrupt the celebration, and so they deviously devised a scheme or a plan to kill him when the Passover had concluded. So they wanted him dead, they wanted to kill him, they wanted to take him out, they wanted him off the scene, they wanted him done and over and through with but so that the crowd would not be incited any further, they planned to kill him after the Passover celebration. But do you notice what Jesus does here? Jesus, our humble servant, but Jesus, our sovereign master, do you notice what Jesus does here? Jesus forces the issue. He forces the issue. Not only did he claim to be God, But now the streets in Jerusalem are empty because the whole town is worshiping him and he's accepting it. He's accepting that worship. I mean, the Pharisees knew that they couldn't do anything to quiet the crowd. Their only hope of quieting the enraptured multitude was to entreat entreat Jesus to try and silence them. 
Because they knew they couldn't do it. And so their only hope was that maybe Jesus would turn and Jesus would silence his, his crowd of onlookers. Well, how does Jesus respond to the Pharisees' request? Well, he responds with these words. Look at your Bible. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, if they are silenced, if they are quiet, I command the power to raise up inanimate objects to complete the task, to finish the job. And Jesus was making crystal clear here, a crystal clear declaration that he is the Messiah who is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever and ever. I mean, as a matter of fact, all throughout Scripture, uh, we find that all creation praises Jesus. All, all creation praises God, the Creator, I mean, we find it in Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Psalm 98, let the sea roar and all that fills it, and the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He'll judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. I mean, over and over and over again, we find in Scripture that all creation praises His name. But I think we see an absolute fulfillment, a literal fulfillment to Jesus' words that the rocks would cry out. If these were silent, if these people were to shut their mouths and to stop worshiping, then even these rocks would cry out. I think we see, I think we see a fulfillment of that, a literal fulfillment of that in Matthew 27, verse 51. Why don't you turn over there for just a second if you have your Bible on your lap. This is important. I want you to see it briefly. Matthew 27, verse 51. We see Jesus utter these words right after his crucifixion. Jesus says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and here's the phrase, and the rocks were split. The earth shook, and the rocks were split. I think we see a, a, a fulfillment of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 19, literally fulfilled in Jesus' words in Matthew 27, verse 51, that the rocks were split. Back over to Luke 19 now. How different was the vision of the future in the people's minds and in Jesus' mind? I mean, it could not be any, any more different. I mean, the, the people, they dreamed of a throne, but Jesus knew that it would require a cross. Jesus knew that a cross came first. Jesus knew the superficiality of their worship. Many of the multitude who were shouting, bless him, bless him. Many of the crowd who were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, literally save us now, save us now, would just four days later cry out, crucify him, crucify him. You see, Jesus would finish this procession 
in another street lined with people, struggling to carry a wooden cross upon which he would lay down his own life. We refer to this Sunday as Palm Sunday, but that's not originally what it was called. It's not originally what the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday was, was called or referred to as. The Sunday before Passover was known as Lamb Selection Day. Lamb Selection Day. And just as throngs of people were flooding into Jerusalem from all over Israel, hundreds of thousands of lambs were also being brought to Jerusalem in preparation for the Passover. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, not an inspired writer of Scripture, just a Jewish historian, wrote that in one census, over 250,000 lambs were brought to Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus entered Jerusalem literally, friends, surrounded by lambs. Four days later, as those lambs were being sacrificed in celebration of Passover, on the other side of town, hanging on a cross, was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is that the Jesus you know? Is that the Jesus you worship? Is that the King and the Messiah who is seated on his throne that you know savingly? Number three and last, and we'll be very brief here, we see the heartbroken King of Kings. We've seen the humble King of Kings. We've seen the hailed King of Kings as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And now we see the heartbroken King of Kings in the final verse before us this morning, Look at verse 41, Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Luke writes this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. I mean, Jesus' heart absolutely ached over the lostness and obstinate rebellion of his people. It wasn't that long ago that, that Jesus stood in front of another crowd with a broken heart. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, as Jesus looks over the crowd, uh, the, the mass of, of, is, of, uh, of Jewish people, and he exclaims that my heart is broken, pierced through. I have compassion on the people because they are like sheep without a shepherd. The word compassion, splanknizomai, literally to be moved to the core, to have, to have your bowels wrenched. Jesus was heartbroken over the people who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so with the panorama of Jerusalem filling his eyes, Jesus was overwhelmed with grief. He was broken, cut to the heart. Amidst all the cheers of the, of the procession came tears, the king's tears. His people have rejected him. Matter of fact, John reminds us in John chapter 1 that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. What did Jesus see? He saw the hearts of rebellious people. He saw the proud, unrepentant city smoldering in a pile of rubble that had been drenched with blood. And this passage actually goes on, it continues beyond our study this morning with Jesus' prophetic words that because Israel... Jerusalem had rejected her king, Jerusalem would be destroyed. And in AD 70, within one generation of Jesus' words here, 
we see a picture that is far from peace on earth as Rome absolutely decimated Jerusalem. We see the heartbroken king of kings over the lostness of his people. You see the humble servant king that we see here in Luke 19, friends, let me conclude with this note this morning. This humble servant king that is also a sovereign master calls every man and every woman and every boy and every girl everywhere without exception to repent, to turn from their sin, to turn from their vain striving, to turn from trying to earn righteousness with God on their own, by their own merit, to lay that down and die to it in repentance and instead turn to Christ with faith. Have you come to a place of faith and repentance? Those are the two requirements for genuine salvation. If you have not repented of your sins and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, then you are dead in your sins and trespasses. So we urge you today, this Palm Sunday, this Lamb Selection Sunday, repent. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. Are you worshiping and following the Jesus of the Bible or are you simply following a Jesus of your own imagination? Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given to men whereby which we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, our risen, ruling, reigning, soon returning King. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, what a, what a glorious picture this is as Jesus has fixed his face like flint uh, to Jerusalem, where he knew that he would go to die. Everything, every moment of Jesus' earthly life was headed to this very moment, this very point in time, where Jesus, our suffering servant king, would lay down his life on a Roman cross. He would do it willingly and voluntarily. Jesus said of himself, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And Jesus, we thank you for laying down your life for us. Father, I pray that each person hearing these words, watching this message this morning, has come to a place of true repentance and faith. And if that is not the case, God, I pray that you would draw them, that you would work miraculously in their hearts and draw them to true repentance and true faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not Jesus plus anything else, but Jesus Christ and Him alone to the glory of the Father. Because we know that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead and confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, they will be saved. What a glorious truth and promise we have from you. We love you. We worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.